0: Hello.
1: Is Is this Molly? Yes, it is. Is this Cora?
0: Yes.
1: That was Cora Weiss, activist, feminist, and social justice advocate. She's been a part of every anti-war campaign since Vietnam, played an integral role in the American-Soviet and North Korean disarmament agreements, and has founded noteworthy organizations dedicated to minority education, female activism, civilian safety, and international peace. So why have we not heard of her? It seems as though her name has completely escaped school textbooks and every wartime Netflix documentary series, and the bits of information pieced together from online truly don't compare to the real story, her story. Hi, I'm Molly McEnany, and this is Ephemeral, a new podcast. In a fleeting time where the world is changing far quicker than ever before, one college girl spotlights her female heroes. So let's start from the beginning. Weiss was born on October 2nd, 1934 in New York. During your early life and childhood, what was your family like? They
0: were very loving, caring, uh, remarkable people. My mother was an orphan who came from Russia. She was an immigrant. Um, and if Ice had been around then, she would have been sent back to Russia before she could even walk. Uh, she was brought by her father. Her mother died soon after childbirth of meningitis i think she was brought up in a guess russian and yiddish speaking family of relatives were here she eventually went to nyu new york university and she was the valedictorian of her class pretty good for an immigrant orphan and she married and had two children. She drove a car, and that was pretty rare in the 1940s. I mean, not not a huge number of women were driving cars. And she became she set up the Roosevelt for president reelection campaign in 1944. I guess in White Plains, New York, and that was Westchester County, which was pretty rock rib Republican at that time. It isn't now. And Eleanor Roosevelt came to our house to support her husband running for president. She used to fall asleep on the couch for about 10 minutes, and when she woke up she knew exactly where everybody was in their conversation. So that was an impressive thing for me. And we used to go to the train station where the young men were being drafted and sent off to war we brought coffee and donuts. We ate donuts in those days and saw them off. And that was my first exposure to war and to the fact that uh, a trainload of guys may have gone off to war. Barely a couple of cars full would come back. It Uh, demonstrates graphically how I saw the war.
1: So... Your mom sounds like she's pretty progressive as well in activism and, you know, campaigning. And it seems like it nurtured you to become more involved in politics in some way. With the Vietnam War starting up in 1955, how did you first get involved in these anti-war campaigns? And why was this something that was so important to you?
0: Well, we were, I was very involved in the early days of Women's Strike for Peace. And we had a chapter in... Town I lived in, and people would come and meet in our living room, and other mothers would diaper their babies on our living room floor, as did I. It started like that, and it grew rapidly and women's strike was dedicated to ending the testing of atomic bombs we called them atomic then because they were, and we used to collect. The baby teeth, when our kids would drop their teeth out, and before they got their grown-up teeth in, they all did the tooth fairy number, found a nickel or a penny or whatever under their pillow at night, and in exchange, we took their teeth. In Women's Strike, we were dedicated to stopping the testing of atomic bombs because of The danger, and we proved the danger, we sent the baby teeth to Dr. Barry Commoner, who was at Washington University Medical School in Ohio, and he studied the baby teeth for the presence of Strontium-90. Strontium-90 is the lethal factor in an atomic bomb, one of many, but And he indeed found Strontium-90 in baby teeth. It certainly increased our desire to get rid of the testing of nuclear atomic bombs. And we went around the country um, campaigning and educating people about what the nature of atomic bombs was and why they had to stop. Because the bombs would be dropped in their tests and they would explode either underground or on the grass and cows would eat the grass. We, everybody fed their babies cow milk. And so that was a direct radiation item.
1: So essentially the women bonded together because their children were actually being most affected by this. Exactly.
0: And in October of 1963, two years after we started, uh, John F. Kennedy was in his White House office And Jerry Wiesner was his science advisor, and women were at the gate of the White House standing as witness because Kennedy was signing what we then called the half-ban treaty, meaning it was just the treaty to ban the atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs, not all nuclear Nuclear weapons, which I I regret to today because now we're stuck with nuclear weapons, and we've got to get rid of them. So Wiesner looked out the window. He saw women from Women's Strike for Peace standing at the gate, and he said, Mr. President, look who's watching, so to speak. We were witnessing this. We were down on the street, and he was up in the White House. And he came to the window. He saw us. He called Jackie, his wife, and he said, bring those women coffee and donuts. And she did. She came down and brought us coffee and donuts. It was an inspiring event. We did what we came together to do. And then we continued with a campaign in disarmament. And then the Vietnam War broke out. And the women had to make a decision. Either they were going to continue working on disarmament, or they were going to work against the war, because it was a war war that was not necessary. It was a war that no Vietnamese ever came and hurt anybody in this country or bombed this country. And of course, it took a number of years before we found out that it was a war that was started on lies than many wars have been. In any event, women's strikes sort of split at that point, 1969-ish. And some women said they wanted to continue doing the disarmament work, and some women said they wanted to start anti-war work. And I was one of the anti-war people. Women's strike was very important to me. I learned more in women's strike than I did in college, although I did pretty well in college, I think, because I was working on Joe Must Go, Joe for Joe McCarthy, and I was in Wisconsin.
1: The Joe Must Go campaign began on March 18, 1954, in an effort to recall Senator Joe McCarthy of Wisconsin. People rallied behind the movement, accusing McCarthy of subverting President Eisenhower's authority and ignoring the major financial issues of Wisconsin's dairy farming industry.
0: The Joe Must Go campaign, which was started by a Republican editor of the Sauk City newspaper in Sauk City, Wisconsin, and he was Republican, and he said it's time for Joe McCarthy to go, and so he created the campaign called Joe Must Go. It was a petition campaign, and I used to help ground up petitions, get them signed. But I also drove around the state in a Studebaker car, and Studebaker was made in Milwaukee, so that was okay. But I used to get pelted with potatoes and tomatoes and corn. Really? And I wondered why until I walked around the car one day and realized I had New York State plates on. And so that was my first political lesson in life. If you work in one place, don't bring your license plates from another place. I was 19 or 20. I collected thousands of signatures, and it was enough according to the legislation you were required to get x percent of the vote or of the registered voters i can't remember which but a percentage of something that was established by the state to recall it was a, a recall campaign we wanted to recall senator mccarthy and so we had that we had more than enough signatures but then we had to have the signatures read and authenticated by some group of men, Um, and the men were probably appointed by McCarthy. Who knows? Anyway, they threw out so many signatures that they claimed were illegible. So we didn't get McCarthy uh, recalled, but it created a very interesting example. Fast forward, the governor, just a couple of years ago, was a recall to recall a petition campaign to recall the governor of wisconsin and it was based on i'm pretty sure because that was the only time there had been a
1: petition recall to recall before in wisconsin cora is referencing the 2012 recall of governor scott walker who became the first governor in u.s history to actually survive a recall but the joe must go campaign definitely set precedents for cora's life promoting civil action So after college and during your involvement in Women's Strike for Peace, you actually attended the U.S. meetings with the Vietnam Communist Party. What did you witness when you visited the Hanoi Hilton where American POWs were being kept? I believe you received a little bit of backlash for your more positive review of the conditions in the camps. You know what? To be a
0: prisoner of war is terrible. To be in a prison is terrible. They had running water. And they had outdoor latrines that were kept clean. And they had books. And I'm not going to make a big a, a big case supporting it because I wasn't, I mean, I met a lot of prisoners of war while, during the course of the war. I brought home three of them um, as a peace gesture. Uh, and every single prisoner of war walked off the plane when the war was over. Not one of them came on a gurney. And only one was on crutches. It was pretty impressive, but it's war, and war is horrible, and it makes terrible things happen, and so oh, I'm not going to defend it, I'm just going to describe it.
1: So what was uh, the process like getting those three POWs home?
0: Well, we started an organization called the Committee of Liaison with Servicemen Detained in North Vietnam because the president was using the POWs as an excuse for continuing the bombing. And he was saying that as long as the Vietnamese are going to be taking our men prisoner and torturing them, he didn't know whether they were or were not tortured. Because the president was using the POW issue as the pretext for continuing the war, he decided to try, we meaning the anti-war movement, or people from the anti-war movement, decided to try to take that pretext away. and. The government and the families did not know who was a prisoner of war and who was missing in action, who was dead, who was alive. And we thought if we created a system where the POWs could write letters every month and could receive mail every month, that would establish a list of who in fact was alive in the POW camps. And that was pretty unique for wartime. I'm not sure that any other war had a a situation like that. And so six of us, I guess, in the beginning, invented this idea. And I was the co-chair of the organization with David Dillinger. And we had gender equality then, imagine that. Uh, and we, sent, we went to Vietnam. A, a group of women were from Vietnam, from North and South Vietnam, came to Canada on July 4th of 1969. Our most patriotic holiday, and invite and the Vietnam, the uh, Voice of Women of Canada invited Women Strike for Peace women to come up and meet them, and so we went up to Canada and on somebody's farm and we were sitting on the grass licking ice cream cones. It was July fourth. And the Vietnamese women said to me, why don't you come to Vietnam? It was the year that we had the November 15, 1969 mobilization against the war in Washington. And I was one of the co-chairs of that. I couldn't go before November 15. After that, I could go. And they suggested I bring two other women with me, and I did that. Madeline Duckles from Berkeley, California, and the woman who was the president of Women's Strike for Peace from Philadelphia. And we went to Hanoi, and we brought lots of letters with us from families because we let them know that we were going. And many of the letters didn't have recipients because they were missing in action, but many of the letters did. And when we came home, we brought back 300-plus letters from almost all the prisoners of war and immediately got them to their family at their destination families and that was the first time that was close to christmas in december that was the first time that many many of the families heard from their men and knew that they were alive and they were alive in a vietnam prison camp which was not like the nazi concentration camps by any means We couldn't negotiate with the military because that's against the law. So we did everything through the Vietnam Women's Union, and that's as close as you can get in a communist country to a civil society organization. The women were fantastic, and they gave messages to, I guess, the military, whoever was responsible for the POWs. And we asked if the men could reply, could write back. And we brought home all of these 300 letters plus 300 plus letters and that was kind of a historic amazing moment Walter Cronkite ran it on CBS that night when we landed in San Francisco anyway it was on CBS that night and it was in all of the AP newspapers and it was huge yeah uh, and first we landed in Hawaii <laughs> and uh the captain got on the microphone, the plane, the pilot, rather, when we landed and said, You're wanted on the tarmac. And I was, I just, my I, I guess it was the beginning of blood pressure for me. <laughs> I was scared to death. I had no idea, and I had all of these letters on me. And when I got down the tarmac, uh, There was Stuart Meacham from the American Friends Service Committee, who was one of the people that started the Committee of Liaison with me and Dave Dellinger and Dick Fernandez and others. Um, And he was waiting for me. He lived in Hawaii.
1: The following letter, preserved in the Library of Congress and dated September 18, 1970, about one year after the first visit to receive POW letters, reads as follows. Dear friends, we are very happy to forward the enclosed letters to you. I would like to give you an account of the events that took place around the illegal seizure of these letters at Kennedy Airport on Wednesday. Robert Scheer announced that when he arrived in Hanoi, he had been given 375 letters from pilots whose names appeared on the list of 335 previously confirmed prisoners. Mr. Scheer, with a delegation of 10, had spent three months in Algeria, North Korea, China, and North Vietnam, and had accumulated a wide range of materials. However, U.S. customs officials at Kennedy Airport were interested only in the whereabouts of the letters. Mr. Shear opened the two packets of letters for the customs officials to see. They then took him into a private room and demanded that he turn over the mail, saying he must open it and read it. He refused to hand over the letters as they had been consigned to him for immediate delivery to families. Finally, the customs officials agreed to place the letters in bond where the packages were officially sealed and a receipt given to Mr. Scheer. Last Saturday, 143 letters were brought by a traveler returning from Hanoi. That brought to 1,243 the number of letters from prisoners that have been delivered by hand to the U.S. without interference. No explanation has been offered by anyone for the seizure of the mail, and no guarantees have been made that this will not happen again. We reminded the State Department that it was the government that had seized the mail in seeming disregard for the families, prisoners, and the future of communication between them. Mr. Scheer offered to meet with representatives of the State Department at the airport to discuss the situation and see what could be done to prevent further occurrences of this nature. His request was rejected. When he went with Rennie Davis and myself to reclaim the mail, he was unnecessarily harassed, and the press was ejected from observing the reclamation, despite the fact that the very same people had observed the seizure. When he finally got the letters, Mr. Shear immediately transferred them to the Committee of Liaison for distribution. We were very distressed about this incident. This delivery of mail brought first letters from previously non-confirmed prisoners for four families, some of whom had been receiving mail for five years. We have devoted considerable time and effort to maintaining a reliable and efficient channel for communication between you and the pilots. At the initiative of the North Vietnamese, both the volume and frequency of mail has increased." The pilots have been receiving increasing numbers of packages, including a wide assortment of food, medicines, clothing, and various kinds of games. We are not responsible for the consequences that acts of governmental interference may produce. Please do not hesitate to be in touch with us if you have any questions and kindly inform us of any changes of address. Should you wish us to forward your mail to your relatives in North Vietnam, we will be glad to do so. There will be several people traveling there in the coming months. Sincerely yours, Coral Weiss. So, I found a letter that you wrote from 1970 about a problem getting POW letters through U.S. immigration. Why were immigration officers so restrictive upon this return to the point where they tried forcing the opening of these letters in customs?
0: I'll start this way. We were so dedicated to the idea that we had to take the letters that we brought back And different people brought back letters every month because we sent three different people every month to Vietnam for three years or two-plus years, something like that. And uh, they brought the letters back to us in our office, and we would work 24-7 to get those letters out in the mail to their destination immediately immediately. I mean we didn't want to waste a minute because we knew how important it was for the families to hear from their loved ones what he did he held us up and that was what was so distressing that they people got the letters eventually but the the um, the delay was not in part of our culture, was not part of our habit. And it, you know, it affects your reputation. He was supposed to give us the letters when he came back.
1: And were there any other issues that you and the committee experienced that made transferring the letters more difficult?
0: I don't remember any other. I think that stands out as the glaring example of what shouldn't have happened. You know, we we recovered from it, obviously. Yeah, But this letter demonstrates our distress. And the reason that we took letters by hand in the first place was to avoid problems. Because when the mail was going, when you dropped a letter in the mailbox, much of that mail got diverted in, I can't remember which cities abroad, where there was sort of a CIA or DIA diversion In the post office, no mail ever went from Washington, D.C. or New York City directly to Hanoi without going through some other cities. So I guess on their way, they got diverted and opened and the mail coming back by postal service was censored. So that's why we created the taking the mail by hand system.
1: Were there any other committees that were going on at this time trying to do the same thing that you guys oh, were no. doing?
0: No. I mean, they were. there were effort by the, the National League of Families. There were efforts to do different things, and Ross Perot who recently died, he tried to do very dramatic things like sending turkeys on Thanksgiving by plane, or a group of families of wives went to Paris to the peace talk and brought gifts that were inappropriate. Wires were found. One of the things that we tried to do was to increase the packages that the pilots could receive so they could get books, paperback book and soap and razors and, you know, more things. And more often, that was part of our arrangement when we went in in November, December 1969, when we brought the proposal for the once-a-month letter writing and hand-carrying of mail. It included increasing the packages that they could receive, And one of the things that we were shown when we were there were sabotage efforts found wrapped inside toothpaste tubes and uh, in the wrapping of soap to create the items that might affect the lives of the pilots if found. And when they opened up the soap or when they opened up the tubes of toothpaste, they found these things and they showed them to us which is what made them leery or wary, I should say, of the package issue. But they finally agreed to increasing the quality of items or the quality and quantity of items in packages, but they were very carefully surveilled.
1: By the guards in the prison camps, right?
0: Yeah. So... uh, Things happen that are quite interesting in wartime and survive after wartime. There are a lot of American veterans now who live in Vietnam, which is quite interesting, and who do work on retrieving landmines that are still being found in the field. And these former veterans, they're not former, these veterans are helping to remove them, to locate them and remove them, to save lives. Landmines don't know that the war is over. And if you go plowing in a field, and the field still has landmines, you get killed 50, 40 years after the war.
1: The League of Families or Wives, as mentioned earlier, tried to establish their own channel of communication with POWs, because they were pro-Nixon and the committee founded by Cora Weiss was not. But even though there were other families that refused to use the Committee of Liaisons due to political differences, they ended up being the sole reliable network between U.S. families and the captured pilots throughout the entirety of the Vietnam War.
0: And that started. And then, and then after that, we three Americans went every month carrying mail and bringing mail back. And they also came back as eyewitnesses to the war. They could report on what was going on. It was pretty unique, pretty remarkable. Pretty and it wonderful. was initially
1: because of that first meeting in Canada between. with women. Women.
0: Women start lots of things.
1: They sure do. Yeah.
0: Not all women are good women. Of course. But it's nice to know that there are enough of us around.
1: The Committee of Liaison with Families of Servicemen detained in North Vietnam was integral to the United States' understanding of the condition of American prisoners of war. And with Cora Weiss leading the pack, she helped to develop one of the most extensive POW MIA lists and was able to provide information directly to the family members of soldiers who were over 7,000 miles away.
0: And, um, and, 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 and then in 1972, they invited David and me to Paris in August of 72 and said they had talked to us about something and we got to Paris and they said, we'd like you to come to Vietnam and take home three American prisoners of war. We went with the mother of one and the wife of another and the third pilot, his his wife and father were persuaded by the Defense Department not to have anything to do with us. So I became his surrogate. When they were released, they let three of us three women go in to receive the men before they came out to the public, to the press. And I was his reluctant (laughs) surrogate because his mother or his wife or his father refused to come with us.
1: In February of 1973, the first batch of U.S. POWs from North Vietnam were released and brought back to the states as a part of Operation Homecoming. The first
0: group of American prisoners released under the Vietnam Peace Agreement have now had a day to enjoy the emotions of freedom. They've had an opportunity to call home, to sleep in good beds, and to eat the kind of dinners never known in the communist prisons of North Vietnam. And American doctors at the Philippines' Clark Air Force Base have had the time to give them at least preliminary checkups. They report that most of the 143 men are in relatively good physical condition. The expectations are that many will be leaving for the United States later this week for recuperation at military bases near relatives. Most of the prisoners, 116, left their captivity in Hanoi after generally smooth formalities.
1: 591 U.S. prisoners of war eventually made it home by late March. Now, at this point, you've had a long-standing relationship with Vietnam. Vietnam was eventually brought into the United Nations in 1977. What was that process like with you as the chairwoman of the committee?
0: Well, first, Vietnam had to survive, I think, two veto votes. They were vetoed for their membership twice. I can't remember who the ambassador was who finally raised his hand. It might have been Andy Young. Could it have been... Remember. Anyway, it could have been an African American ambassador. Anyway, they did survive. I mean, they had to survive two vetoes before they could become before they could take a seat at the UN and become members and raise the flag. And it was quite remarkable. I remember Helping them find an apartment in New York City um, and an office. Um, and we became friends with many of the representatives, introduced them to the American way of life, something neat to do.
1: So, now post Vietnam War, how did you initially get involved with the Riverside Church in Manhattan and their disarmament program in 1978?
0: I had a radio program one called Cora Weiss Comments, and it was from 1971 or two to 1973 or four. I didn't care what you did as long as you had bosoms or an, or, or ovaries. You just had to be a woman, and it was the progressive st- jazz station. It was located in the basement of the Riverside Church, which I had nothing to do with in 1971. And I had no idea that in 1978, when Reverend William Sloan Coffin was called to be the senior minister, I would be working on the ninth floor uh, running the disarmament program under his ministry. It was the first church in America to have a disarmament program. Firsts are fun things. It was wonderful. I loved every day, every minute. We did things that people thought were ridiculous we had conferences every year, sometimes twice a year. We created an international chancel uh, pulpit. Of people from around the world who were doing incredible things would come and either speak or preach. or But it, it was separate from the Sunday sermons. People came because it was a moving and shaking church because of bill coffin but also because of things like we sponsored a sanctuary for a couple and their son from guatemala i picked guatemala because there was already so much attention being played aid to el salvador and i figured guatemala was being ignored and it was there was a civil war going on throughout central america but they enemy of the people was funded by the USA. It was 78 yeah. to 88, yeah. 10 years, at the Riverside Church.
1: During this time at the Riverside Church, you were a delegate to disarmament summits between America and the Soviet Union. Could you tell me a little bit about what went on at these summits? In
0: 1985, I was a delegate of the World Council of Churches to the Women's Forum in Nairobi. And that was a UN conference. It was the third U.N. conference on women, and there were official government delegates who sat in one place, uh, conference halls. And then there were what they used to call non-governmental organizations, which I always thought meant no-good organizations, NGOs. I call us civil society organizations. And the World Council of Churches asked several women to represent them at this Nairobi Forum of Women, in 1985 and we had a peace tent that we pitched and we had remarkable meetings between the soviet women and the american women it was still the soviet union in that day in that time and um it was a pretty neat conference pretty extraordinary and then so i was working at Riverside Church from 1978, 1978 to 1988. And a year after the Nairobi Conference, making it 1986, a very wonderful woman who was an expert on the Soviet Union persuaded me to accept the invitation to go to Moscow to, to a conference that Ms. Gorbacheva, Gorbachev's wife, was sponsoring to talk about what happened in the year following the the Nairobi Forum, a kind of report on what successes took place as a result of the Nairobi Forum. And there were thousands of women, and I sat next to a Soviet woman. We started talking. She used to work at the USCAN, which stands for U.S.-Canada Institute, and she was a foreign policy expert. Her name was Elena Ershova. We became good friends, buddies, and we began an American organization called Women for a Meaningful Summit. Following when Gorbachev and Reagan met at their first summit, we decided we wanted a summit with more results, better results. And the second summit took place in Geneva, and we went there as women. And met with Gorbachev. It's not been I. I haven't been idle. All I care about is leaving this world in better condition with peace and justice for the children and the grandchildren of everybody.
1: And Cora Weiss was far from idle when she became involved with PAN, or the Peace Action Network, which is mobilizing to this day peaceful global diplomacy. In 1993, the Peace Action Network came about, which is arguably America's largest anti-nuclear and anti-war organization. And you served as an international representative for them. The international, the representative. international representative. So, what did you, <laughs> what did you do in that position?
0: I established relationship with an affiliate relationship with the United Nations, and uh, worked created a uh, mobilized a group of people a committee an international committee and internationalized thinking and doing of peace action peace action grew out of sane and sane then became sane freeze which was known uh, which was popular during what was called the freeze movement and then sane freeze morphed into peace action so we had the UN representative from the days of SANE, a long time ago,
1: 60s. SANE, being a citizen's organization for a sane world, was formed in 1957 as the National Committee for a SANE Nuclear Policy, or quite literally, complete disarmament.
0: I've never done anything alone. Everything takes teamwork. Everything. And if there's no team, there's no success. It's true. So I don't want to take credit. Things that I may have done because I really haven't done them alone. I mean, I may I may have done them alone, but I did them in cooperation with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's what makes them the best experiences, though. I think is sharing them with others. Mm
0: hmm. 1999 Uh, was the most important year because that's when we created the Hague Appeal for Peace. And it it started in 1996, actually, when we, six people, three women and three men, sat around a glass-covered, a glass-topped table at the church center for the UN in New York, which was a building owned, built and owned by the Methodist women. And we had offices in that building and it faced the United Nations smack right in front of the UN. And we said it's time to celebrate the centennial, which would be in 1999, of the world's first Peace Congress, 1899, in The Hague. And a very remarkable woman named Bertha von Suttner was active in that. And the guy from the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, looked at everyone and said to me, Cora, you be the president and you be, and the next person be the secretary and the next person be the treasurer and the next person be the executive director. And that's how that happened. It was not democratic, nobody elected me. It was, (laughs) he wanted to just get it over with. I'm still president now the Hague Appeal for Peace is represented by the Global Campaign for Peace Education, which is was born at the Hague Appeal Conference in 1999, where 10,000 people from over 100 countries came and deliberated for three days and emerged with the Hague Agenda for Peace and Justice for the 21st Century, a 50-point program going from a culture of violence to a culture of peace. A number of offshoots from that conference are daughters or sons of the Hague Appeal for Peace were born including the Global Campaign for Peace Education which exists online go to gcpe.org <laughs> it's fantastic it's a daily newsletter and a weekly or monthly summary newsletter of uh, peace education initiatives being taken all around the world and there are some re- remarkable things on it there was just an essay the other day recently, is peace education too radical for teachers or too, no, too contentious? And actually the International Institute for Peace Education, which is, works together with the Global Campaign, is having a conference in Cyprus as we speak. Peace educators from around the world are meeting to catch up with each other's developments and success stories and feathers and what they're doing, what they know, what works, what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. They meet every summer in a different country that agrees to host them. Go to IIPE.org. You'll find out whatever you want to know.
1: Lovely. Love that. I'm interested to know if there was a single moment or an experience where you saw a glimmer of peace can be a worldly thing and not just, yeah.
0: In October, I think October 30, um, 2000, we succeeded a group of civil society, mere mortal women, got together around the table at UNIFEM, which was, is now called UN Women, but UNIFEM was the Women's uh, Organization of the United Nations. And uh, we designed something called Women, Peace, and Security, which was unanimously adopted by the Security Council. All those men, I think there was one woman on the Council at the time, voted yes to the draft that we drafted of um, Women, Peace, and Security it's called Security Council Resolution 1325. It is 18 or 19 paragraphs that contain three P's, P for peace. The first is participation. It calls on women to participate at all levels of decision-making. It calls for the prevention of violent conflict. That word prevention happened at a time when, the, when prevention was toxic, the UN and in other places. People weren't preventing yet. And it calls for the third P for the protection of women and girls during violent conflict. But now we say that you can't just pluck rape out of war and let the war go on. You have to stop and prevent wars. Stop the war and prevent the war to prevent rape. I mean, that I'm most proud of. Uh, Security Council Resolution 1325, I helped to draft it. I helped to lobby for its unanimous passage, and every year in October we celebrate and we honor 1925. Now there's an organization called the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders, which has youth women ambassadors and it goes around and at the invitation of local women's organizations, it uh, enables women, it it, it empowers women by helping them understand 1325 at the local level, so they have a localization program, and then shows them how to bring it to the national level, so they have a national action plan. And they're active in many countries, and it's terrific. Women are strengthened by using this resolution, 1325, on women, peace, and security, and it came from civil society. People have to give civil society a lot of credit. We started lots of things.
1: Cora even created her own organization, the Fellowship for Young Women Peace Builders, which was launched in 2015 to support young people as they seek out sustainable peace and gender equality for the future. You were the president of the International Peace Bureau for six years in the early 2000s, so I think after... From
0: 2000 to 2006.
1: Yeah. And you were an inter- integral factor in promoting peace between the U.S. and other countries, that c- as we can see by this um, previous legislation that you put together in the 2000s in October with other people. And Because of this, how do you feel about the United States' relationship with foreign leaders today? And maybe do you have a solution for some of the problems that the U.S. is experiencing
0: I think the rule of law has to prevail, not the law of war. War is not legal. I mean, it, it is legal in the sense that there are, there are Geneva Conventions that regulate what you can and can't do during wartime. But, um, but the rule of law has got to be followed, A. B. Diplomacy is the weapon we have to use. It's a non-violent weapon. And more people should be trained in diplomacy and more people should be uh, brought into uh, to the table. Talk, don't fight. And I'm not a Gandhian idealist. I'm not an ideologue, a pacifist ideologue at, by any means. I supported the Second World War, and I also think it was the last just war that this world has seen. And we've got so many nuclear weapons now, thousands. And now we have hypersonic weapons and drones and MEP and AI and my God, the new technology can just wipe us all out overnight. It's insane. I mean, it is so dangerous that to have a dangerous person in the chief as the chief decision maker makes it very frightening. So we have to use our. Our experience in diplomacy, we have to stop making weapons that are unregulated. We have to stop making weapons, period, regulated or not, but we certainly need to regulate. And we've got to stop hating and calling
1: people names. Activism has obviously impacted your life quite a bit. For those just starting out, what is your advice for Young Activists Motivating Change.
0: Follow your passion. Follow your dreams. Do what you think is right and best. And, and good luck. Do What you think needs to be done and that other people can gather with you to do it. Don't ever use a weapon. Don't ever hit anyone. Nonviolence violence is pretty important and impressive and succeeds. If you don't feel passionate about something, forget it. Sure. And don't be a siloist. Don't. I mean, I shouldn't say don't. Putting issues in silos is getting us into trouble. We have to realize that climate change and nuclear weapons and insect extinction are all threats to the continuation of life as we know it, threats to the planet as we know it. And we have to talk about them together. We know that climate crisis causes refugees, because people can't live on islands anymore. They're going to have to go to higher ground, and then higher ground, those governments are not going to let them in, and there's going to be anger, and the anger is going to become violent, and da 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 and then there's violence and war. So there's a relationship between the climate crisis and violence and war. And there's a relationship between insect extinction and survival, because there's going to be nothing around to to pollinate plants, which we need to create food. You know, there are these Sustainable Development Goals at the UN, 17 of them, and frequently they're seen as independent blocks that are separated, and I want to glue them all together because they're about education and about gender equality and about climate and about peaceable societies, and they all are related. Life is not a a single issue. It's a holistic set of issues.
1: Lack of education affects, you know, people's health affects everything everything and then it goes yeah
0: gender inequality affects everything it's basic I could say something else and I'll show you why it's basic and we have to get together the anti nuclear people and the anti war people and the climate people have to work together because the consequence of climate crisis and the consequence of nuclear weapons is the end of the world you know you don't you don't come out alive when those things do their number we have so, more yeah. in common than in conflict we should work together and it's true in bangladesh and in china and yeah. in india and every all over the world that things are changing yeah. and it's in your face brother and sister
1: is there anything else you'd like to add about Well, I'll tell you where
0: I'm going now. Yes, please. I I should be going into retirement. (laughs) I have no time to retire. I'm helping an organization of retired teachers, educators, called the Committee on Teaching about the UN, to produce a conference on the 75th anniversary of the United Nations in 2020. The United Nations was created... We the peoples determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. And I am suggesting, and we're going to be doing it, a conference for educators and students on the 75th anniversary in 2020 called War No More. And it's enough already with saying we shouldn't make this weapon or that weapon or we should abolish another weapon. We just have to not make war and we have to develop diplomacy and respect the rules of law and alternatives to violence, alternatives to war. I think most people are tired of war, even though most people in this country have never experienced war, but the kids have in the sense that they've been drafted or volunteered for Korea, for Vietnam, for Iraq, and maybe for Iran. I mean, if we haven't learned any lessons from all of these adventures, violent adventures, then I don't know what we can pass on to our children and grandchildren, but we've got to stop making war. The time for war to go has come.
1: Takora she may call her work a story of her life's passions, However, I truly believe Cora feels it is her duty, our duty, to be active citizens in our communities. She's a visionary for world peace and even now will not stop striving for it. You now life is one big story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ephemeral. I'm Molly McEnany and I'll see you next time.